You may be seated. We're going to be passing around the offering real quick, if you wouldn't mind snagging that bucket real there. I'm going to put one of these over here as well. Oh, you got no hands. <laughs> Just throw a cup in. It's fine. All right. So offering is coming around now. Uh, and then children, if you wouldn't mind stepping forward here for me. Who are my kids' workers today? Debbie and Chelsea. All righty. Hello, Savannah. All right. Kids, are you all ready to pray real quick? Let's take a minute. Oh, thank you very much. I will certainly be praying for that for you, okay? Let's pray, everybody. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for these kids. Thank you for the way they are learning about you and growing in you and for the way that they're learning how to be like you, Lord. You are good, you are holy, you are wonderful, you are kind, you are loving, and you are teaching them how to be the same. Lord, I pray that you would pour out your word into them, pour your spirit out into them, allow them to hear and understand the good news that you love them and that you take care of them. Lord, be with the teachers as they teach. May they have your words. And Lord God, may you be glorified in them today. Thanks for these kids, Lord. So hear me pray. Amen. All right, guys, have a good day. Thank you, sir. Is that, uh, is that loud enough for you guys? Am I coming through okay? Go. Yeah, I know uh, Blade, you know, Blade's been doing metal vocals recently, so I'm not going to scream up here, but um, let me get a timer set up real quick. Actually, we got a clock there. Awesome. So I don't go over too much. So um, we're actually going to be heading back into Galatians. So I guess the last time I preached, I was in Galatians. Uh, so first time preaching here, we're still in Galatians, which is good. Um, but we're in the last part of the fruit of the Spirit, which is self-control. Um, which I thought was kind of ironic being that it was Thanksgiving and typically we're like feasting and just overindulging and stuff like that. Um, but there is a time for feast and a time for fast. Um, and so um, we'll discuss more of the idea of fasting, more of the idea of self-control, um, probably fasting specifically on its own sermon at another time. But um, those kind of things to keep back in, the mi- in your mind of that as we're talking about self-control um, and think kind of things that we've been thankful for for this week uh, and what's been going on in our lives. Um, that we keep in mind that it doesn't just apply to food and our eating. Um, it applies to our passions. It applies to how we discuss things with one another. It applies to how we react to a situation. Um, it applies to how we view God. Uh, how does God showcase self-control? And so first, uh, uh, you guys probably had this beat in your head with Galatians and stuff like that, but I want when you know you go to sit down and read, you know, one of the things we were talking about with our study class is how do you read your Bible? How do you study these things? We need to know the audience that it was written towards. You need to know to some degree why it was written because um, this will help you with your interpretation. The, you know, one of the things my professor Sue Nicholson said to me is the text can never mean what it didn't first originally mean to its audience. So what that means is it wasn't written for a 20th century audience. It wasn't written for us specifically. There's things that can apply to us. There's things we can take from it, but it wasn't written to us specifically. Um, so with the book of Galatians, I would probably put it around being written in the 16th century. There's still debate about when it was written. So this is part of it, too, is that certain theologians, certain scholars, certain people that study scripture will date stuff at different time periods. And it's important to see why they're dating it that way or what could be the probability of it being written at that time. But I put it around the 16th century because I believe it was more likely to be written to the ethnic Galatians. Um, so there have been people of like a Celtic origins. Um, and presumably it was written by Paul to correct Jewish Christians. Uh, and what I mean by that is Paul 
if I did it this way, Paul would have gone through one of, one of his first, one of his missionary journeys. Other missionaries would have come in and kind of brought about their teachings to the Galatians, and they kind of perverted or twisted some of the things that Paul had taught. And now Paul was writing back uh, and saying and correcting kind of these teachings. So some of the practices, um, I don't know if you remember, we discussed um, circumcision and stuff like that. Um, so these were Jewish people that became Christians, but they were still holding Mosaic law, saying, okay, if you converted and became a Christian, you still have to be circumcised to be a Christian. Where Paul would pretty much say, no, that's not what I taught. You're bringing about your Jewish faith into this, but that's not the truth of the gospel. So Paul's trying to correct this. Um, something I also want to keep in the back of our minds is that uh, Zach had talked about the fruits of the Spirit, and we're discussing self-control, and we're discussing the fruits of the Spirit. And one of the things that he brought up that I thought was awesome is that the fruits come from God. These, these things that are given to us, the patience, the kindness, and all these things, they're, they're given to us by God, where the works of the flesh are very self-fulfilling. They're very much so about us. They're not community-building. Um, they're very much about how can I gain, not how can I pour out, how can I give. Um, it makes me think of uh, life together and uh, just in general, whether it's uh, a book being written, uh, I was actually talking to Anthony about it, um, or just us collectively living. Um, this idea that all that we do and all how we glorify God um, isn't just meant for us to grow in our relationship with him, but it's meant to grow the community around us. It's meant to build up and empower those around us. Um, so community is just as important. And so Paul is bringing this out um, with these fruits of the Spirit. And when he talks about it, how he's saying how it comes from God, it first originates by God, it can only be found in God. And if it is of God, it's going to bring up and build around the community around us. Um, so there's your, there's a quick little background of the Galatian um, area and uh, why this was probably being written. Uh, I'm going to read the passage real quick. It's the one that we all know that we've been going over time and time again, um, but it's Galatians 5, 22 through 26. Um, and so I'm just going to read through that quickly, and then we're going to focus on specifically self-control. So chapter 5, verse 22 of Galatians. By contrast, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against such things, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us be guided by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. So there's the passage we've been going through, and we've been breaking down each section. You know, we, we went through um, love and joy and peace and pa patience and kindness and generosity and faithfulness and gentleness, and now we're on self-control. And so we know that these fruits of the Spirit come from God, but what does self-control look like? So, and what I mean by that question that I'm asking is that if these things come from God, what, how does Christ exhibit self-control? What does godly self-control look like? Not just our definition of having self-control, because I think sometimes, you know, we're like, okay, I'm going to the grocery store, I'm at the checkout line, and I see, like, this bag of candy, you know, uh, and I'm just like, that's not having self-control. Like, no, I'm not going to buy that bag of candy. It's something transcendent. There's a there's a degree of self-control um, that Christ has um, that is relatable to us, and there's a degree of self-control that Christ also had that is not relatable to us. Uh, and I'll touch more into that in a little bit. But something else that we know is that we know God's Spirit can help our thoughts and actions. And what I mean by that is Scripture talks about uh, consistently. Um, that through prayer, God can answer things. He can guide us. He can give us good counsel and things like that. Do we really believe that, though? Do we really believe that when we're, we have these passions or desires um, that we know aren't good, or maybe we even perceive them to be good, do we really believe that God can conquer that? 
Do we really believe that God can break those things in us? Scripture would testify that, you know, he does. He listens. He speaks to us. He, he knows every thought. He knows literally every hair on our body and stuff like that. He created us in our inmost being. Um, but do we really believe that he can help these, with these things, that he can really help guide our thoughts, that he can help guide our actions? Are we one of those few people, and I say we because I think we're all guilty of it, where, well, it's just not like that, God. You know, we, we try to be so individual. We try to be, I call it the Disney mentality, where we think we're so special. We think we're so unique. When I really think one of the biggest things about our culture that could really help us change um, would be that we're more like each other than we like to believe. We're not as individuals as we try to make ourselves, but there's a lot of similarities that we can grow over. There's a lot of, and even if our similarities is that, like, life just sucks in this area, or I'm not good at this, it's far more relatable to not be good at something than it is to be, like, this great, amazing whatever. You know, I, I think through that vulnerability, um, you, we can really grain, gain community. And, and so sometimes when we approach God, we don't approach him with that mentality. We don't approach them with the idea that, like, well, you have endured everything that I've gone through. You really have lived the life of a human. And even more so, you've lived a life of a god, of a deity being really bound by this world. Being, think about that. Like, something that's outside of time, outside of matter, outside of space, created all things, pushed them into existence, and then limits himself by matter, limits himself by time, limits himself by space, and limits himself as a god. Like, takes on humanity fully and wholly while still being fully and wholly god. And he, like, literally could have just been, like, I don't know, like, he could make the food that you're eating just taste like crap. You know, he, he could have done that. He could have got mad at somebody and just be like, you're just going to all catch on fire. The degree of self-control that he had, that as a god, he still didn't just blow up on people. I mean, one of the things that really hit me hard uh, about two years ago, as I was reading um, through his reactions with Pilate and re his Christ while he's being crucified, and um, the degree of silence and taming of his tongue, uh, just like he could have just blown, he could have made them cease to exist there. You know, you could just been like, I don't like you, you're done, annihilated, done. They're, it's as if you never existed. And that's not what Christ does. So if God, who is fully man and fully God, uh, whilst being at a place of being crucified where he knows he's literally going to endure this pain, endure uh, this heartache, knows when to be silent, knows when to tame his tongue, knows when to bless his enemies, like the degree of self-control that he had when he could have ended it all. And so this is what self-control looks like from the heavenly perspective. This is what self-control looks like from the Christ-centered perspective. And so if Christ could live that way, if he could lower himself to becoming fully man and fully God, uh, if he could do that, do we really believe that he has our best interest in mind? And what I mean by that is if we're saying that these fruits of the Spirit come from God, right? And if one of the fruits of the Spirit is self-control, and if self-control is modeled by Christ in this way, um, do we believe that if we are called to live as Christ, if we're supposed to surrender and to follow Christ, do we believe that his model of self-control is appropriate for our lives. I we just like, no, Jesus, I still think, you know, you don't get it the way that I do. You know, like, you, you really don't know what it's like to have a smartphone, or you really don't know what it's like to have all these different things. Do we try to make these excuses? Um, well, really, what we're doing is we're putting ourselves in a higher pedestal than Christ. We're saying that, like, hey, at the end of the day, you know, I'm still enduring more stuff than what you had to endure. Like, are we really doing that? Are we really going to sit there and argue that this man that 
crucified himself, that lived a perfect life, had to die for no reason, um, blessed people, was kicked out of towns for healing people, was argued with by priests and uh, things like that because he didn't do things the way that they wanted to do them, had no wife, had arguably lost his father, had a widowed mother who had him at a young age that was outcasted because she had him when she did, and we're going to sit there and be like, well, you don't know what it's like. You can't relate to me. And this is, I think, one of the things that can become a detriment to us is that, you know, we believe these things that come from God, but yet we still try to determine and we still try to make those gifts the way we perceive them. Is it like, well, this is what I want my Jesus to look like. You know, my Jesus is white, blue hair, you know, blue eyes, blonde hair. Uh, you know, we, we try to make him the way that we want him to be as opposed to allowing him, and that's just physical appearance. I'm, you know, that's, that's the easy one. I'm saying like, you know, uh, Jesus is someone who's calling us to be merciful, gracious, compassionate. You know, you will, they will know that you love me based on how you love my people. You know, this is, the, this is the definition that Christ gives us. But what do we try to say? Well, this is what my Jesus looks like. You know, we may not recognize that. Um, and I think no matter what, I'm going to end up in heaven. There's going to be a part of Christ that I was misguided on because I'm not perfect. I'm not gonna, I don't have it all together. But I'm going to strive to my, my very best to know Christ to the best ability that I can. You know, and even in heaven, that's going to continually be like that. I'm going to continually strive to know Christ in the best way that I can. You know, one of the things Francis Chan said is the eternal is anything apart from being in the presence of your divine creator. You're missing out on it altogether. Like, you're literally going to be in the very presence of the God that you worship, the God that created all things, that knows all things, that loves you unconditionally. You will literally be in the presence of that. You know, and that alone is worth more than anything. Um, but again, so this is, this is the degree of, of what Christ has done. And, you know, he tries to give us these gifts. But even in giving us gifts, we're still, like, kind of, like, through Christmas and just like, well, I like that shirt, but it's not the right color that I like. You know, and this is kind of what we do with these gifts. And so Christ is like, this is what self-control looks like, or this is what gentleness looks like. And we're like, yeah, but I don't like that rendition of gentleness. I, I prefer, you know, this version of it. You know, this is what we do. And oftentimes, this is where we get some of our sex of religion, right? Is that, like, well, I like the discipline aspect of your faith, but I, I maybe don't like the whole justice aspect. Or maybe I don't like the justice, and I like the really humanitarian aspect. Um, where Christ is all those things. He stands for all those things. But once we elevate an attribute of God above Christ, or above God, we've now made a, a part of God, God itself. You know, this is why one of the reasons why some may argue the... Augustine uh, principle that man first sinned because he chose to do a lesser good, not because he chose to do evil. What I mean by that is there's the knowledge of good and evil. Man chose good and evil, that knowledge, which is an aspect of God. They chose knowledge as that being the better good, being better than God. So they took an aspect of God and made it God. We see that today even with um, justice. Sometimes people are just like, you know, we need to stand and fight for things, blah, 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 blah. And then they end up going about doing this war stuff and slaughtering and killing people and stuff like that. So an aspect of God, of justice, we've now elevated as being God itself, and because of that, we've missed out on the fact that he's also merciful. He's also compassionate. He's also gracious. And so these aspects, you know, we can fall into this danger of worshiping an aspect, worshiping one of these gifts of the Spirit, and making them gods, as opposed to recognizing these, these are all collectively one and together and the same. And unless we surrender it to Christ, unless it's truly coming from Christ, we will pervert it. We will allow this goodness to be used um, for evil. And I, it's one of the biggest things for me that I've tried to at least learn in myself is that we tend to hate what we are ourselves. And what I mean by that is we tend to see the sins or the problems 
and other people that we are dealing with because we currently are struggling with it. It's easier for us to see that in somebody else. And instead of being relatable and vulnerable and saying like, hey man, this is where I'm struggling too. You know, I understand what it's like to go through that. We tend to hold it over them and we tend to project it on them as this is what you have to fix. When this degree of self-control that Christ tries to give us will also include gentleness. It will also include kindness and faithfulness and, you know, kindness and patience. This is what they all work together, much like the Trinity works together. These gifts all work together. And so this is why it's important that we must surrender. Uh, And this is why self-control needs to come from Christ first. It takes us recognizing that maybe this is the issue I got going on. Maybe I need to be more gentle here, okay? Well, you're not going to achieve that gentleness by just you recognizing it. You got to surrender that over to Christ and say, how am I going to be gentle? How am I going to be kind? And trusting that like, he will provide that kindness. He will provide that opportunity for change. And so much of it too is even for myself is, you know, this is taking it out of context when I say the word self-control. Um, it's not meant specifically in this passage like this, but when I was just thinking about control and things like that. I think of like me controlling things selfishly as well. It's oftentimes there's situations that like I want to be fixed. There's situations I want to, um, I see somebody struggling and I don't want them to hurt anymore. But really that's out of my own selfishness because more importantly, if God desires that more so than even what I do, he loves that person or loves that thing far more than what I do. And so I'm still not surrendering that over to him. And then what happens is I usually end up getting burnt out and I usually end up reacting or saying something I don't want to say. Um, all because I, even if it came from a good place or good intention, it was still about me. It was never surrendered over to Christ. But once that's surrendered over to Christ, you wait for that appropriate timing. He will align that timing to work out perfectly, and he'll be glorified through it. Even if there is a fight, even if there is an argument that you know, comes there on after any of those conversations or relationships that you have, there's the potential of him being glorified. There's the potential of him being honored. Um, and I, I had this conversation with many people before. I mean, um, one of my past friends that have had, went through a horrible divorce, I mean, just talk about the degree of self-control, gentleness, and love. Um, his wife had left him for things that weren't reasonable reasons for divorce. And just keep in mind in this church, we're not saying that if you're divorced, you're going to hell, or anything like that, or that it's sinful, that there are appropriate times for divorce. Um, this was not an appropriate time for divorce. Um, but essentially, um, his spouse was upset that he didn't make enough money. And so keep in mind, this man also worked three jobs. Um, and so he was doing 60, 70 hour weeks, all between, got to the point where he actually developed carpal tunnel because of the work that he was doing. Um, she left him because he wasn't making enough money. His response wasn't of, uh, well, fine, then give me all the money that I've made. His response was like, I know you really want to go to college. I know you really want to um, pursue your career in this. He's like, I'm married to you. He's like, just because you want a divorce, he's like, and this little piece of paper says divorce, he's like, you're still my wife. And so, to this day, he's paying for her to go to school. Even though she's completely rejected him, left him, he's still working those three jobs to serve her and to love her as his wife. This is what that degree of surrender looks like. This is what compassionate, merciful love looks like. You know, and this is what he's doing. Um, And, I mean, every single time I see him, he doesn't resent her. There's no bitterness. He's like, she's still my wife. And this is Christ's relationship with us. When you look at at Israel... And he's like, he's like you're, you're naked and abandoned in the wilderness, and I picked you up. I clothed you. I fed you. And then what does Israel do? What do we do? Okay, that was good. Now I'm full again. Okay, I'm going to go back and do what I usually do and forget you. And then we mess up, and then God comes back, and he's like, yeah, I'm still here. You know, I don't, I don't know what happened. 
Um, but if we would surrender this idea of to have control, at least in that perspective, surrender the idea of like, this is how I want it to be. And we could be like my friend and we could be like Christ and sit there and say like, well, it's not a matter of how I want to be. It's surrendering that over to you. You have control. And when you have control, this is how I'm called to live. I'm called to show mercy, love, graciousness, compassion, justice, faithfulness, all these things. And so the definition um, for self-control, getting back to the text specifically, um, actually uh, is a Greek word for temperance. Um, it'd be like egratia. Uh, that'd probably be about the, the, the way that the word had been used or phrased. Um, there's multiple translations, so that was the way that I was kind of taking it. Uh, but it would essentially lead to uh, temperance. Um, and for that culture, temperance would have meant the virtue of one who masters the, their desires and passions, especially their sensual appetites. So the word being used here is essentially uh, have self-control, have the ability to master your desires, to master your passions, to have ownership over them. But how do you have ownership over those? You surrender over to the Christ and you recognize that he mastered those things. And by him mastering those things, he can guide you to get over them as well. And so let's, for me, when I was thinking about it, I was like, well, let's think of a practical example of this. And so maybe think of Ken and Rebecca's dog. Uh, in the past several sermons, I've kind of been talking about that. And when you think about it, like animals in general, just like us, but I feel like it's a little more easy for us to understand, but think about their dog. Their dog on its own has its own desires. It wants to eat, needs to go to the bathroom, say it wants to chew on something and tear up the house or whatever. It has its own desires. Now, when Ken and Rebecca come along, though, they teach that dog when it's an appropriate time to eat. What's right? What's wrong with that? And then to the point that this animal that could have survived out in nature, that could have been fine out in nature, now starts to trust Ken and Rebecca for its well-being more so than itself. I think we can learn from that simple practicality that we may have thought is like, well, maybe this is the sermon they always wanted to preach to them or not they got to preach, but this is something that, to me, it was spirit-inspired because there's something that we learn from this. We can learn that, like the dog, you know, oftentimes we are returning back to our own vomit, as it would say in Proverbs and stuff like that. But also, like the dog, you know, maybe come to a place in a relationship with Christ where we recognize his guidance, that we trust how he leads us more so than what we do. That we're not tearing up our houses or our lives and ripping apart things. But, you know, I think of James's dog, how when he comes home at night and stuff like that, dog will snuggle the crap out of him. May we pursue God in that way. Will we recognize that that's the love that our Father has for us, the love he has for all of us, and that he's just saying, hey, man, I just want to hug, man. I want to hang out. You know, and, but so often we're saying, well, no, this isn't the God that you are. This is how I want you to be. As opposed to recognizing, like, no, this is when you feed me. And there's seasons of life where, we're, where we'll go on walks. You know, there's also other seasons where it's just like, hey, it's cold. I'm going to put some mittens on your feet so you don't get hurt. You know, and we're like, well, I don't like how that feels. You know, that we are often so much just as petty and simple as an animal. I guess petty is the right word, but just like we're not as advanced as we try to make ourselves. We're not as superior as elite as we try to make ourselves. Um, and so what does this mean for us then? What, what can we walk away from, from this? Well, Christ guides us and modeled that perfect life. And like I said, even more so that not only was he God um, and man, um, but consider that everything that you've gone through, everything that I've gone through, everything that we will all go through, Christ lived out perfectly. He modeled that perfectly. But then consider the fact that none of us know what it's like to be a God. None of us know what it's like to have that power. And Christ refrained 
and had self-control and only used that when it was an appropriate time. Even when the woman grabbed onto his cloak, he says, my azuzia, that was the Greek, that word was used twice ever in scripture. It means God-like power left him. Christ still had control over that. He still let that go to heal that woman. He had complete control. That's the degree of control that he had, that when someone grabbed his robe, he knew that that power left. He felt it leave. You know, so that's, that's the degree of control that he had. So keep in mind that Christ had the control of basic humanity, like our lives as humanity lives, but then also had this God aspect. So he had a degree of control that we will never be able to fathom, that we, we can't ever grasp. And that was tacked onto the whole thing of just like, yeah, you're going to be hated. Yeah, you're going to be crucified. Yeah, people are going to you know, do all this stuff against you. They're going to disagree with you. You're trying to heal them. They're like, hey, don't heal people. This isn't how you're supposed to do things. They're going to tell you that you don't know what you know. And this is, this is the life that he lived. All because for our benefit. And so for Christ, for God to be glorified. And not to mention the, the Trinity within itself exudes all these fruits of the Spirit. They all work within each other. You know, the Father and Son testify the Spirit, the Spirit and the Son testify the Father, and all the way around. There's a relational thing happening there within our God, which is just crazy. And if you find someone says that they can explain it to you perfectly, they don't know. We can't fathom that. Like, that's, that's a, it's, it's one of those concepts that we believe and we adhere to, um, but we don't have all the answers because we're not God. We don't understand what it's like to be transcendent of all those things, to be, you know, outside of space, time, and matter. It's nuts. It's, it's crazy, but it's, it is logical and it's practical. And I'm not going to get onto a rant with that, but like, that's something that is good to talk about. And it's important that we do know that um, our, Christ, or our Godhead itself is relational with itself. Our God itself is relational with himself. Um, and so even though uh, God doesn't force us to follow, uh, and he, God doesn't force us to follow him specifically, um, that's him even exuding that degree of self-control. Is it like, you know, God oftentimes, and this is why, and I'm not speaking for the church in general, um, but when we start, when people start going Calvinistic or Armenian and things like that, um, one of the things that uh, truly full five-point Calvinists would say is that irresistible love is that when Christ appears to you, you cannot deny that love. It's so overwhelming that you cannot walk away from it. It's one of the ones I can't deal with, that I struggle with, because I think that love... Um, can never force you to follow. Uh, and I also think of uh, instances of like Judas that literally walked with Christ, like literally was in the presence of God and just like, nope, and just walked away. You know what I mean? Or even all the disciples that, you know, to some degree left or abandoned Christ. Um, now granted, one might argue it's because the spirit wasn't poured out to all of them. But that's, that's a different talk for a different time. But what I mean by that is that God doesn't force us to follow him. He doesn't force us to listen to him. He doesn't force us to even receive these gifts. It's kind of like, you know, like that, uh, kind of like a spoiled kid at Christmas when, like, somebody gives him a gift and he's just like, nope, not what I like, and just throws it away. You know, doesn't care whatsoever. Uh, it's kind of like that, but instead of, like, being an upset parent, like we often are, or upset siblings or whatever, uh, God's like, it's cool, I still love you, maybe next year I'll like it. You know? Uh, <laughs> and so, like, it's, it's one of those things that he doesn't force us, and I think of myself of even, like, is it good for me to go to McDonald's and eat an entire family box to myself? No. That is a desire and a passion that I have that is not good, but I still do it. Is God like, really not ethical to eat there? No, he's not doing that. He's not saying that it's really not good for your heart and your family's history of heart issues. No, he's not. He's like, 
you have the freedom to do that. I tell you not to do that. It's probably not healthy for you. It's not good for you, but he doesn't force us to follow him. That's an area of surrender that we have to give. So even in our eating, we surrender. And something as simple as eating, um, which that's a sermon that I like to preach on that I've never got to talk to or time to speak on or preach on, is the idea of fasting, though, and feasting. In the appropriate time, recognizing that if you're feasting every single day, if you're feasting weekly, then you really don't understand, what it, you really don't appreciate what it is to feast. You're just overindulging. It's just gluttony. Uh, and gluttony is not just specific to food. It deals with lust. It deals with the idea that you desire something and you should have it now, as opposed to waiting to the appropriate time to feast. And so this applies to all areas of our life. Um, and so uh, the Spirit can guide us uh, on these thoughts and actions. Our question is, do we believe these things, as I asked earlier? Do we really believe that if these things come from God and God literally indwells in us, that he can help our thoughts and actions, that he can train us when to feast and when to fast, that he is there for us when we need to fast from things? Uh, uh, do we really believe that this degree of self-control, that do we think that God can really get us to the place where our desires and, sp- and passions um, can be walked away from or can be saved for the appropriate time? Or are we still in the place of just like, well, this is my passion and this is my appetite, so I'm just going to overindulge and feast all the time. Uh, this is not the, the way that Christ lived. This is not the, the kind of degree of self-control that he's calling us to. The degree of self-control he's calling us to is that have the ability to recognize these passions, not seeing these passions as purely being evil. Because I think that's one of the things that we do, too, is that we make self-control something about like, well, this is the thing I struggle with, so therefore it itself is evil, and so I'm just going to stay away from it altogether. And there's, a, there's an appropriate time to do that in some instances, in some situations, but that thing itself is not an entity that has evilness or goodness. You know, when I think of, um, I don't need to go into specifics, but just keep in mind that like, it's the idea of surrendering over the Christ. It's the idea of not just attributing something as being bad and walking away from it and actually not going to Christ about it. You know, there's balance to all these things. Um, and, you know, I, I think, you know, the McDonald's example would probably be a good example for that. Is that, like, you know, is it, is Guy going to be mad that you went and got a McDonald's cheeseburger and gave it to someone that was hungry? Probably not. You know, he's probably going to be like, you fed those that were hungry. You know, was it the most ethical and practical way of how they made that burger? No. You know, but it's, it's the principle, you know, of that, like, you